Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip, scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. As you might be able to tell from the intro, in my fantasies, I am the premier scandal rag of trans history. I approach trans history in this mode both because it's a fun and engaging tone, and also because so much of trans history exists in the whispered spaces between solid facts. Shamed and silenced for so many years, our historical record is patchy and must be filled in with rumor, innuendo, and imagination to bring it to life. My favorite stories to tell are those that involve actual scandal. And on that, this week's episode delivers. The subjects of this episode, quote, absolutely rocked Charleston society back in the late 60s, writes Edward Gilbreth. It's a story involving celebrities, sudden wealth, cruising, poverty, interracial marriage in the Jim Crow South, international news coverage, and a mysterious pregnancy. Join us for the Ballad of Don and John Paul. The person who would become Don Langley Simmons was born in 1922. Or, if you believe a later marriage certificate, 1938, to an unwed teen in Heathfield, Sussex. Her mother worked as a servant in Sissinghurst Castle, the home of Virginia Woolf's lover, Vita Sackville West, and her husband. She married Sackville West chauffeur, Jack Copper. There's some confusion in the various tellings of the story as to the parentage of Don. Some online commentators note the physical resemblance of Don to Vita Sackville West and suggest that Don may in fact have been the illegitimate child of Sackville West and chauffeur, Jack Copper. This seems far-fetched to me, but I do love the cinematic quality it lends to the story. In reality, Marjorie Hall Ticehurst was the unwed teen who gave birth to Dawn, and it was Marjorie's mother, Dawn's grandmother, who raised the child while both parents worked in the Sackville West Castle. Just picture Downton Abbey and you'll get a general idea of what that life was like. Dawn would later claim that she had a condition which caused her genitals to swell, leading her to be misgendered at birth and raised as a boy. Researcher Edward Ball did not find evidence to support this claim. Here's how she described it to This American Life in the 1990s. I was born um, in a country village in England with a country midwife. And um, 
when I was born, the um, uh, the clitoris was so swollen they couldn't tell if I was a little baby boy or a little girl. And the law in England was that at that time, it was a very cruel law, which incidentally was changed through my case. Um, the law in England at that time was that when in doubt, the child is just automatically registered as a boy with dire results. Now today, if um, that had happened, the baby is immediately taken to the hospital, has just a little surgery and everything is put right. Mm -hmm. In my case, it wasn't. And it was um, very difficult when I, I looked like a little girl then when menstruation started, it was irregular in that, but it was very frightening. After the war, Don worked as a teacher on an Ojibwe reserve at Lake Nipigon in Ontario. It's worth noting that the history of white teachers, both in day schools and especially in residential schools on reserves is a stain on Canadian history. Indigenous children subjected to white teachers were often forced to give up their languages and traditional cultures, and many were physically and sexually abused, some even being murdered. This is not to say that Dawn was responsible as an individual for such acts, but it is something to keep in mind. She later wrote about her experiences on the reserve in her 1955 book, Me Papoose Sitter. Following her stint on the reserve, Dawn returned to England where she first began working as a writer, in addition to teaching in Croydon. Her work as a journalist led her to immigrate to the United States where she took a job as society editor for the Nevada Daily Mail in Missouri. Two years later, while working as a society columnist for the Port Chester Daily Item, she met Isabel Whitney at an art show. Isabel was a lavishly wealthy woman descended from Eli Whitney, who had invented cotton gin. The two became close, and soon Dawn moved into Isabel's mansion on West 10th Street in New York. Following the publication of her first book, Me Papoose Sitter, Dawn's next project was a play titled Sarabond for a Saint. Staged in Harlem in 1957, the play was an interracial love story between two male soldiers. Perhaps unsurprisingly, it attracted controversy and gained Dawn the attention of celebrities. She began writing biographies on socialites, royalty, and celebrities around this time. She would go on to write books about Princess Margaret, Vinnie Ream, Jacqueline Kennedy, Lady Bird Johnson, Mary Todd Lincoln, Margaret Rutherford, and others throughout the rest of her adult life. At the end of the 1950s, Dawn wrote a 150-page gay novella. The plot is about an older writer who cruises a 19-year-old man and hires him to be his servant. Like most gay novels from the time, it ends in murder. Though the novella was never published, it and her previous play, Sarabande for a Saint, give us some clues as to her activities in the 1950s. Though living with Isabel, she was almost certainly cruising for gay sex. It's likely that Don was out as a gay man as much as anyone could be in 1959. The following year, Don met British actress Dame Margaret Rutherford. You might remember Rutherford as the psychic medium in the film adaptation of Noel Coward's Blythe Spirit, or as the original Miss Marple. Rutherford and her husband, Stringer Davis, had a strange habit of adopting young adults. Rutherford was quite taken with Dawn and adopted her not long after they met. 
They would remain in each other's lives until Rutherford's death. Isabel, however, was in poor health, so the two decided to buy a pink stucco house in Charleston. Zagria notes that the house was located in the gay area of Charleston. Isabel died before they could move down to South Carolina, and Don, for some reason, flew Isabel's body to her own home in Heathfield, England, to be buried, though Isabel had never visited there in life. Don inherited Whitney's large trove of antiques and art estimated at $1 million. Alone, Dawn returned to the big pink house in Charleston, where she installed herself as part of society there. Virginia Carr recounts a popular story in her biography of Southern writer Carson McCullers that McCullers met Dawn at a party in 1963. McCullers apparently took Dawn aside and told her, you are really a little girl. This moment of recognition is all the more interesting given that if she were alive today, as Sarah Shulman writes of McCullers in The New Yorker, quote, she might have been living as a transgender man. By this time, Dawn was known to be cruising men at a nearby bus station. Evidently, admittance into gay society in Charleston was dependent on having a beard, in other words, being married, so the single Dawn was unable to find friends there. Zagria notes that white gay men in Charleston at the time sexually segregated themselves from black men. This is yet another way in which Dawn differed from them, as she actively pursued sex and relationships with gay black men. On the one hand, this could be seen as somewhat more progressive than her white gay peers who eschewed all contact with black men. But on the other hand, it may have entered into the realm of racial fetish for Dawn, Remember that her 1957 play had been on the subject of interracial gay relationships. Dawn fell in love with an 18-year-old black man named John Paul Simmons. However, her efforts to get his attention as a man failed. She transitioned around this time and began living as a woman. When she pursued John Paul as a woman, he quickly moved into her house. Don wanted to access the newly created gender clinic at Johns Hopkins University Hospital, which you can hear about more in our previous episode on Reed Erickson. She got into the program in 1967, the Summer of Love, and John Paul went with her to the appointment. Dr. Edgerton at Johns Hopkins informed Don that he believed sexual reassignment surgery would be a mistake for her, but that they would do it if she wanted. The possibility of Don having surgery drove John Paul out of their home, a scene tragically familiar to many trans women who date chasers. She begs him back by saying she wouldn't have surgery, but once he agreed to come back, Don went ahead with the surgery the following year. Her surgeon was Dr. Howard Jones. It was then that she changed her name to Don Pepita Langley Hall, Hall being the surname of her grandmother, and Pepita being the name of Vita Sackville West's grandmother. The surgery scared off John Paul again, and again Don had to persuade him to return to her. The two were then married by a judge, thanks to the legal wrangling of a lawyer Don hired. She listed her age as 31 on the marriage certificate, but by this time she was in her late 40s. 
The two were married in Virginia, as South Carolina still had racist laws on the books that prevented interracial marriage. Virginia, however, had just lost a Supreme Court battle in Loving v. Virginia two years earlier, which I'm sure you may have heard about, uh, perhaps in the recent film Loving. And it was now legal there for interracial couples to marry. Their engagement photos ended up on the front page of a British tabloid, News of the World. The wedding occurred January 22, 1969. It took place in their home with a pastor from the Shiloh African Methodist Episcopal Church officiating. Don had recently become the only white member of the congregation. Here is how one man who attended the wedding remembered it in an interview with Jack Hitt for This American Life. I should note that he misgenders her and more than borders on being racist towards the pastor. It was a farce. They were all gathered in the living room, the big living room. There was a group of people in there and the bride wasn't present. They had a Negro minister who couldn't read the prayer book properly and um, they had a makeshift altar in front of the fireplace and when the there was a TV station there and when the bridal party came down the stairs to the tune of the, the Battle Hymn of the Republic which I thought was the beginning of a farce at the moment <laughs> uh, they came into the living room and he discovered that he would have his back to the camera. So he made the preacher turn around and face the, put his back to the camera and, and let him face the audience. There were two little babies toting the train on the, he had a regular wedding gown on with a mantilla on his head on over a wig and the, the train was attached to the mantilla in some way, and those two little ones, when they went to swing around, were swinging in a wide circle and almost pulled his head wig off. <laughs> and what happened uh, after the, the vows were exchanged? Were you there for the reception? It was a bang bang affair with a, a lot of people, all, all black, very much all black. There were just a few whites. Who was there? Well, um, I can't remember the names now, but there were people who worked in the furniture business and in, the, in that business that generally attracted um, homosexuals. Zagria notes that the wedding caused a huge scandal and received coverage in the New York Times, Newsweek, and Jet Magazine in the U.S., and even as far away as Japan, where it was covered in the tabloid Shukan Shinsho. One British paper paid her nearly 4,000 pounds for a series about her life. In this series, she claimed to have been born intersex and to have a doctor in Harley Street who'd examined her and would attest to this. She claimed in the media that she could even become pregnant. This is the beginning of Dawn's loose grasp on the facts of her life. The gender clinic at Johns Hopkins, she would later transform into a women's clinic. Her transsexuality, she would fashion into a dubious claim of being intersex. When Don's mother died, she and John Paul visited her grave in England. While there, Margaret Rutherford used her connections to get their marriage blessed in an Anglican church in Hastings, Kent. 
but the media coverage, in addition to the great scandal of being both an interracial couple and Don's being trans, upended their lives when they returned to Charleston. Don's society friends stopped speaking to her while the town turned itself on the newlyweds. In addition to facing daily insults in the street, someone set a crate on fire outside their home and even poisoned their dog. Dawn's relationship with John Paul, though motivated by her passion, may have bordered on a sugar arrangement. Already bleeding money from the two weddings, Dawn kept John Paul's interest by buying him three or four boats along with three cars. They may have been pariahs, but they lived large for a time. The Whitney estate's trove of antiques and art began to dwindle. The bank threatened to foreclose on the pink stucco house, and in 1971, it did. Don and John Paul moved into a cheap rented house in the wrong part of town. Rumors about Don swirled around town. Some Charleston residents even believed, or said they believed, she had gained voodoo powers by marrying Jean Paul. These powers were tied to her piercing brown eyes that Jack Hitt claims are the thing people remember about her most in Charleston today. Dawn appears to have begun receiving welfare around this time, apparently having been drained of finances by the marriage and subsequent efforts to keep John Paul's interest. Zagria brings up the point that none of the money in this story makes sense. If Dawn inherited approximately $1 million of an estate from Isabel Whitney, why would her house need to be mortgaged? Why would she end up on food stamps? And while on food stamps, how would she finance these trips back to England? Since much of this is derived from her autobiographies, which are filled with obvious lies about her being intersex, among other things, we are only left with questions. Regardless, with less money to hold his interest, John's grip on John Paul became weak and he soon took up an affair with another woman. The woman became pregnant and in what seems now a completely bizarre scheme, Don and the woman's father arranged for Don to fake a pregnancy, check into the hospital to give birth when the woman did, and for Don to buy the baby. Dawn began patting her baby bump and wrote to Johns Hopkins Clinic to tell them that she was now pregnant. They, I'm sure somewhat incredulously, invited her to come for a checkup. At their expense. She turned down the offer, but did phone in late October 1971 to tell Dr. Edgerton that the baby had arrived. The 49-year-old Dawn registered herself as the baby's mother and named her Natasha. Around this time, she published the first of three autobiographies, which she had titled The Ballad of Don and John Paul, though the publisher renamed it Man into Woman. The book is filled with what we now might euphemistically refer to as alternative facts. In it, she puts forward her claim again to having been born intersex. Her relationship with John Paul around this time became volatile. He came and went. When he was around, Don would turn up bruised and injured, which she blamed on white muggers and the continued racist backlash against their marriage. But when Jean Paul was not around, these mysterious bruises would disappear. 
One letter she wrote to her husband reveals the truth behind her stories. Quote, My dear Johnny, I am not upset with you as I know you were not yourself the other night. I have no money left. You know that and you destroyed all of my work when I couldn't give you $30 for your son. I shall never stop you from seeing Natasha as I love you and have always loved you. Nobody would love a man who has tried to kill them several times, given them 45 stitches in their face, broke their nose and cheekbone, and ruined the eyesight in one eye. But I have never, ever shut the door against you, and you came back. You were the kindest man I ever knew before that woman ruined you with drink. I am eternally thankful to you for the most beautiful baby in Charleston. You don't have to live with us again, Johnny. I don't think you can live with anybody. Her accusations against white attackers continued, culminating in one particularly dramatic story in which she claims a masked white man broke into her home, threatened her baby, raped her, and broke her arm. She filed no police report. The story would later be told on NPR as being about a mafia thug. Here's how she describes it. Warning, it is mildly graphic. And he said that Dawn Langley Simmons had two chihuahuas for bridesmaids at her wedding. Well, I didn't have two chihuahuas as bridesmaids at my wedding. Um, my little maid was married in the house, and she looked after the two chihuahuas, and she brought them down for her wedding on a cushion. And, and this was a story. So I called Dina Crane, who was my um, uh, media agent, and I said, Dina, you call that Albert Goldman, and you tell him I'm suing him for a million. Uh, if he doesn't print a re retraction, I did not have two chihuahuas as bridesmaids at my wedding. And so he called up in turn Dina and he said, you tell Dawn that uh, if um, she doesn't sue me, I'll tell her who tried to have her killed in Charleston. And we'll come to that in just a moment. And he did. He was investigating the role that the mafia had played uh, in... Um, the drug trafficking, they used the inland waterways and so forth, and the, and the lonely plantations and so forth. And he was told this story in a bar. And apparently um, a, this group of old Charleston society people led by this former lover had um, put a contract on my life. And of course that night I was alone in the house and Natasha was had then been born, my daughter, and I heard a crash upstairs, and I thought the baby had fallen out of a cot. I ran upstairs, and there was a man standing over her wearing a ski mask, white man, holding a knife over the baby. He broke my nose. He crippled his arm, which has never been... I've been able to use it properly since, and broke up my big toe, beating me up, and it was a rape thing. And then he threw me off the porch. Uh, the porch was three stories up. I was fortunate enough to land on a lump of sand and covered with blood. I crawled in the house and that actually happened. Whether or not these attacks actually occurred, it's clear that the South was not a welcoming place for an out trans woman married to a black man and raising his child. She fled with the baby to the Catskills. There she bought a house with a $200 down payment. John Paul left his other child and other wife to follow Don and Natasha North. There he worked as a sculptor for a time, but soon the old troubles returned as he took up drinking and drugs again. Eventually, 
Things became so bad that Jean-Paul was taken to an asylum in Albany where he was diagnosed as schizophrenic. He would spend the rest of his life in and out of hospital, committing minor crimes when he was released. Meanwhile, Don went to work as an art teacher at a Catholic school and wrote for the National Enquirer to bring in extra cash. Using money from an advance for her biography of Margaret Rutherford, in 1981, she and Natasha moved to Hudson, New York. The following year, she divorced Jean-Paul, though she remained close to him for the rest of his life. By the 90s, Dawn published her third and final autobiography, simply titled Dawn, and her publisher offered to fly her back to Charleston for a book reading. Natasha, now a grown woman and mother herself, moved herself and her children back to Charleston, and Dawn soon followed. Dawn developed Parkinson's and osteoporosis as she aged. She had four cats and five dogs with her in her home. She died at age 77 in 2000. John Paul lived on for another 12 years in the hospital in Albany. No one came to inform him of John's death until researcher Edward Ball tracked him down a few years later while working on a book about her. John Paul died in 2012. John lived a long and strange life pushing at the strict boundaries of life in the South, both as a trans woman and as one half of an interracial couple. Thanks for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec, on the traditional territories of the Algonquin and Haudenosaunee. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. And if you'd like to contribute to the making of future episodes, please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com OFTV. Donors who give $5 or more per month receive a free bonus mini episode every month. You can also tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night. One of these days I'm gonna stop my listening, gonna raise my head up high. One of these